Hi, welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope everyone's well. I hope you're having a good kickoff to fall. Uh, apologies for the lateness of this episode. I decided to go camping with the family last weekend, and that took precedence because sitting around an open campfire is quite lovely, even in Western Maryland, where it was a little bit cool, but we did have a good time. Um, anyways, I'm excited to be back and have a new episode for you. Um, this time, we're going to be talking about maps. I'm really excited to have Kenneth Field on the show. Uh, I saw Ken speak at the Tapestry Conference last year. He gave an amazing talk about maps. He has a, an unbelievably great book. It's like the treatise on maps, cartography. Um, I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Um, you should really check out the book. I mean, it is a tome, but it is a beautiful book, and it really does walk through everything you really need to know about, about data-driven maps. So Ken and I talk about the stuff that he's working on now, the biggest challenge with data-driven uh, maps, um, his favorite map, his least favorite map. We sort of try to cover the broad range of, of what's going on in the world of cartography all in one you know 30-minute conversation or so. So we try to pack a lot in. Um, before we get to the episode, just a quick note. Uh, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast provider, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, even Spotify now. The show is now on Spotify. Um, if you'd like to support the show financially, please head over to my Patreon page. Uh, I support the show uh, on my own with uh, with my handful of folks who are, who are graciously supporting me, and I'm really thankful that they take the time out and their funds to help me uh, pay for transcription services and audio editing and web services and all the things that are needed to bring this show to you. Also, if you are interested in attending a data visualization workshop, I have two public workshops left this year. I will be in Denver in early November and I'm teaming up with the University of Minnesota IPUMS team. If you don't know what IPUMS is, you should check out the show notes page and you can learn more about it. Uh, it's a combination workshop where I teach data visualization. They talk about how to use, download, and analyze the data from the IPUMS tool. Um, so you really sort of get all the things you'll need to download, analyze, and visualize your data. And then later in November, I'll be in London to team up with my friend Stephanie Posovic. We'll be doing another one of our data design workshops in London. Uh, that week, I'll also probably be attending the Information is Beautiful Awards. I'll also be giving a talk for Sage Ocean. And both of those will be announced very shortly. I'm sure the Information is Beautiful Awards folks are about to announce their plans for their award show. And Sage Ocean will soon put the announcement up for the talk that I'll be giving there uh, in London the week before Thanksgiving. And then I come home and I'm taking a few weeks off. Uh, we've got some big family events coming up uh, here at the Schwabish household in Northern Virginia. So anyway, back to the show with Ken Field. I hope you enjoy this interview. I really enjoy talking to him. I really enjoy learning more about maps, and I hope you will too. So here's my interview with Ken. Hey, Ken, how is it going? How's the wind down to your summer? Hi, John. Yeah, um, doing good. Beautiful yeah. weather out here. Yeah. Lovely. It's like in the like high 90s here. And it's like walking through soup when you go outside. Yeah, I mean we're in the nineties pretty much permanently over here uh, until it <laughs> until it hits triple figures. But for a, for a Brit, <laughs> that's kind of a different difference to uh, you know, sort of grey, cold, wet. You know, <laughs> I did forty years of that, and now I think I'm going to do forty years of this, and then on average, yeah, yeah, yeah. on average, you yeah, should yeah, be all right. On average, on average, you get that line <laughs> exactly. Right in the middle, yeah. <laughs> um. So I'm excited that we're able to chat. 
I really liked your talk from Tapestry last year. And I, I think I bought your book like on my phone as you were talking. Um, so I want to talk all about the book and, and about maps, but um, maybe we'll just start by having you talk a little bit about you, uh, your background, what you're doing now, and, and then we can we can chat about some maps. Okay. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm glad you, you, I found out finally who the person was that bought the book. That's great. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was, that was fun. Tapestry was great. I, I like to challenge myself by going to sort of conferences and events that are a little outside of my normal um, bounds, you know, the sort of groups that you normally go to. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess that's really characterized what I've always done. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an ex-academic. Um, I spent 20 years in the UK as a sort of lecturer, principal lecturer and leader of various GIS and cartography courses at uh, different universities. And that, that was fun. That was great. And um, loved helping students develop their their skills. And it, it's so fulfilling to see some of them now in the industry and doing great yeah. stuff themselves. But then I, I just sort of the truth of the matter is I just got a little bored of all the bureaucracy and admin um, like a lot of academics do. And I had an opportunity to move out to, uh, to sunny California and um, kind of do an academics job at Esri, um, the GIS company in um, Redlands, Southern California, and um, have all the fun of being an academic and, you know, writing about maps and teaching and uh, workshops and you know, helping people who use the software make better maps. And I got to do it all without having to grade coursework. So, <laughs> uh, and sit in endless committee meetings and, uh, right. you know, bid for funding monies to support some obscure piece of research that would never really get done. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I've been here eight years now and I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. It's, it's great. And That's great. And so is your role there to, direct research and then train people <laughs> both on like general cartography skills and also in the tool itself well you saw i'd love i'd love that to be the, the case but the truth of the matter is for a mapping company we have maybe i don't know probably a dozen cartographic experts you know people who would call mm. themselves cartographers and i i guess i fit within that um that bunch of people but there is no sort of cartographic unit there's no um there's no fundamental mapping core group of people we're kind of spread out throughout the company um i actually work on a team that's responsible for uh the development of one of our core products arcgis pro and um, i work on uh, what's called the map authoring team so my job title is senior cartographic product engineer which is kind of you know, I've never engineered anything in my life. Um, and, you know, we have great developers who actually build the software. Um, yeah. But what I do, along with a lot of others, is is help direct what they need to be building um, and to define what map makers and cartographers want to be able to do with the software and, um, and how they want to be able to use it. And I, I guess um, I'm sort of colloquially referred to in-house as uh, the resident cartographer, which... Um, mm. Sounds a bit temporary to me, but you know you have to. <laughs> yeah. so who's next? Who's the next resident? Cartographer? Yeah, right. Who's the next guy? Yeah, I was looking over your shoulder. Um, yeah, but but it's good because I I can you know I can sit and help. I also get to a lot of what I do in terms of making the maps is done really primarily to test the software to try to test it to destruction. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So you know there's a lot of testing goes on in house on small data sets and you know it's a tick box thing. It, you know, it passes the test, therefore the, the software is fit for purpose. But what I try to do yeah. at the same time is is throw a you know a, several gigabytes worth of stuff at the software and 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 see if it passes those sort of tests. The mm-hmm. the tests of making a real map. 
um, and going through a lot of the pain points that people would have to in in the real world. Um, yeah. And then the, the side aspect to that is obviously I can publish the maps, I can talk about them, I can explain how they were made and what the tips and tricks were. And um, in that way, it generates um, sort of educational products and, and stuff to support people in their own work. Right. Are most of the people that you work with making those really data intense maps or is it on the other side of the spectrum where it's it's the, you know, not as data heavy, mm. you know, smaller data? I, I think, I think, at a company-wide level, it's everything. I mean, we, you know, yeah, the software right. supports national mapping agencies doing topographic reference sheets, all the way down to, you know, just just a small, you know, one-person news shop who's who's just got some interesting data about something, and they're trying to create an interesting web map. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, our sort of product range, I guess, falls across that right. entire spectrum. I, I tend to, um, I tend to dabble in a bit of all of that stuff you know sometimes i'm keen to make a nice looking topographic map and to explore those sort of cartographic challenges and other times you know it's like right how how weird and wonderful can i corral this data set into some bizarre visualization just as a an experiment sometimes you know um perhaps just to I, I joke around here that I'm a bit of a 3D skeptic, but I'm forever trying to challenge myself to put data into a 3D view mode just to see whether it mm. offers anything different or whether 3D brings something new or gives us new insights to something. So, um, you know, I can sort of shapeshift a little bit between the sort of mapping tasks that I take on. And what I'm really, you know, grateful for is the freedom and flexibility to basically pick my own my own tasks. So if a, if a new data set appears on the scene, uh, I'll grab it. I'll, you know, let me see what I can do with it. Or, um, you know, I sometimes have challenges with um, some of our other guys here, like John Nelson. And, um, you know, we, we take the same data set, right? What are you going to do with it, John? Or what am I going to do with it? And let's see how, um, how different people can approach the same thing. And, And that to me has always been a fascinating part of the job is, you know, you give a data set to 10 different people and, and you will more than likely as not get 10 different outputs, 10 different maps, right. some maybe not even maps, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have this great book cartography and obviously spend your days working in and thinking in maps. What draws you to maps? I don't actually know how I mean that question, but mm. it's not like people are like, Ooh, I'm a bar chart person. I like bar charts. <laughs> I think, you know, maps or maps are sort of like this, like, this kind of separate thing because they are so complicated and there's all these different representations. So, you know, what draws you to trying to unlock the mystery and the magic behind maps? What a great question. Um, how long have we got? Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, <laughs> I'll just I, let you go. Well, if, I'll just I'll, I'll plug my headphones. I'll come back in a little bit right. and see if you're still talking. Grab yourself a coffee. Um, <laughs> I think. Uh, all right. I mean, you, so I can look at this on a couple of different levels. If I think, think about it personally, um, you know, I grew up around maps. My father was a geologist and, um, mm. you know, the, the house was full of these really bizarre abstract maps. So, and what are these things, these these geology maps? You know, we'd go out and he'd knock bits of grey, lumpy stuff off a cliff and then you'd go back into um, the university and suddenly it's this bizarre multicoloured thing on a piece of paper and it's, oh, how does that work? And so mm. I think I was always um, enthralled with them. I enjoy geography and art and technical drawing and so on at at, uh, at school I looked for a, um, a degree course at university that would give me the opportunity to basically take those loves 
further forward. Um, and that's, by the way, I really wanted to be a surgeon, but oh. I was terrible at chemistry. I never knew you needed chemistry to be a surgeon, but there you go. Um, <laughs> and then I thought architecture, but it's like a seven-year course. And I thought, no, 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 I want to earn some money before that. <laughs> so there's practicalities. And I found a course called cartography in the UK at uh, Oxford Polytechnic, as it was. And um, it, it seemed to me to be a great way to spend another three years basically just doing what you enjoyed. Yeah. And um, I kind of fell into it. I fell into the teaching aspect of it because just at about the point at which I graduated, um, this thing called GIS came along and basically killed professional cartography. So, mm -hmm. you know, those old office drawing um, labs, they, they all sort of went. So I, I fell into teaching and just ended up um, trying to enthuse others to, to have that same passion so that's on the personal side i think on the why do people love maps question and why is it so interesting i, I think basically they're pieces of art and i think people always gravitate to art of some form or another uh, whether it's film music you know painting whatever it is but even within each of those genres you know we all have likes and dislikes you know some people like heavy rock music some people like rap two very very different forms of basically the same thing and, and you could see you can see that parallel in mapping you know you, you've basically got data that you can create something visual out of and it creates an interesting visual system and a um, an explanation of that data and you can mm -hmm. have very very different representations of that same data which yields different uh, impressions different interpretations um and again neither of which may be correct or incorrect but they are facets of the same visual conversation um and that to me right. that to me is um is, is always always interesting so every day you come to work and you know you're basically you can you can create a new map you've got a blank screen or a blank piece of paper and you know what are you going to come up with today um, do you still work with pen and paper when you're designing a map, even if it's you know ultimately going to be on green? Are you working in the analog world first to, to sketch out ideas? Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, maybe that's a function of my age a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I come from a, a hand-drawn cartographic era. That's what I did in my, in my university yeah. days, you know, drawing and... Uh, photographic film and negatives and print plates and all, all that other sort of stuff. Um, and I still now, I get a piece of paper out if I'm thinking of a new map and I just jot down ideas, um, sketch them, not very well, but just just visual ideas. Um, I guess some people would do that digitally. You know, some people might naturally go straight to digital, yeah. but I still think sketching, sketching out and um, wireframing and, you know, getting a whiteboard and just messing about is a great way to think and that's that's where i think the the art and cartography is and what a lot of current maps i guess might be missing is is that sort of time that you spend um drafting and sketching and thinking rather than just going straight into your favorite software dragging the data in hitting a few buttons and seeing what the software can do um mm. i prefer coming at maps of what, what what do i want it to look like and then how can i crack the software to make it do that and it doesn't always work right and, and yeah, yeah 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 but it's interesting that and it doesn't surprise me given that that's where you you're you started your training mm. but it is interesting how it sounds like you take a bit more of um if, if you thought about making a data map 
uh, and split into sort of a design side versus a data-driven side. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you start by coming from the design side a little bit more on um, the data side and then, and then move together. Possibly, but I mean, most of the maps I make are, are data-driven in the sense that if the data changes, I can switch the new data in and, and re-render it and mm-hmm. it, it'll work. I, I'm, I was never one of these people who was satisfied with, um, you, you know, pulling data into something like Illustrator, making the map, and saying there it is because two weeks later it's out of date and you've got to start yeah. again um but I, th- I think what that that kind of training did did for me and, and let me be clear i wouldn't want to go back to those days whatsoever i mean it, you know three months to make a single choropleth map is not fun but right. but what it made you do was was really you know think very very hard because you really only got one chance to do it otherwise you've got to do two months worth of work again and the cost of materials and time meant that you, you really didn't have opportunity to screw up you, you had to get it right uh, or as right as you could I, I, and I guess now it, it you know you can it doesn't matter if you mess up inside your your software you, you just sort of you know, all right, I'll delete, yeah, delete that layer and, and it. rerun it or do something else again right. so I, I think that element of time that that has been yeah. compressed massively these days i mean it gives us wonderful opportunities because we can experiment and we can try things out and we can do all sorts of things and there's no real great harm or uh, cost involved but yet if we're if we're setting out to make you know the map the best we can make it um that that time spent sketching and thinking and working stuff out i still think is critical even though the technology mm. is uh, now massively improved and allows us to to be much more rapid in our uh, map making. Yeah. Um, when I talk to um, students uh, about maps, I sort of couch the whole thing or frame the whole thing as two competing instincts. I want to get your get your take on this. So on the one hand, people love maps uh, because they are familiar. You know, they they see a map of the United States and they recognize it and they can find themselves on the map and. We know that people like to find themselves, but on the other hand, the data maps are not always the best way to actually show the data. So um, you have these distortions. The, the example that I always like to show, which you have a bunch of these on, on your website, is um, you know the Electoral College, where you know a lot of the big states and square miles don't actually have a lot of people in them. So they're not particularly important for the for Electoral College. So this is my perspective is that there's this tension that people like maps, but they're not always great at showing data. And to adjust one of those things, you have this offset on the other on the other one. So I'm curious about your your take on on that and, and sort of an extension to that question is uh, when you're teaching people about how to make map, how do you start uh, and frame this whole discussion about making data-driven maps? Yeah, um, I mean, you're spot on. There, there is, I think there is a tension. Um, and I think it begins with the fact that we're often making maps for people who have very little experience in how to interpret those maps. So they really mm. rely on, on familiarity, which is why you get a lot of the same type of maps a lot of the time. Uh, and, and talking about election maps, um, you know, you will get a choropleth, you get the red, blue choropleths, you, you, you get the maps that people are familiar at, at looking at, hopefully because that means they've got less of a barrier to interpret them correctly. 
So the, the problem comes then when you're trying to use a data set that's a little bit obscure, maybe, or you're trying to make a point that's a little bit uh, you know, hard to tease out of the data. And then maybe there's nuance in the map that is, is difficult to, to find. So sometimes you exaggerate it, you modify the map to tell that story, you do things cartographically to really punch out that message. And sometimes that can really knock people off balance because they expect one thing and then they're challenged visually to try to see something they're not familiar with and try to interpret it. So how do I start telling people how to do this effectively is it's basically just to impress upon them that there is no right and there is no wrong way to make the map. So you're making the map um, based on all sorts of choices and constraints which create this sort of soup and out of that soup you've got to create you've got to sort of pull out the map that is going to do that particular job for that particular user group for that particular set of conditions and environments and for that particular message and so on and so forth um, and sometimes it might not be the map you think you're going to make and that's okay mm -hmm. um, so it's it is a perpetual challenge it's a perpetual tension and I, I think the best best thing that anybody making maps or you know just data viz in general can do is is step back from it and have an appreciation that the person that's going to read that is going to read it a particular way and we we can mess around with graphics and graphic signage to tap into people's sort of subconscious perceptual and cognitive um, characteristics things that we know that the brain does that people aren't necessarily aware of but nevertheless that's what it's doing and that's how it's making you read something and we can do that and we can do that uh, objectively or we could do it to make a persuasive map we could we could play with those things in lots of different ways but but to be aware that that's what we're doing and to maybe step back from the map and ensure that you're you're meeting the objectives you want for that particular user group um, and experiment because it's, it's very unlikely that the first map you make is going to necessarily be the, the best. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's sort of maps I would default to as a quick and dirty test, but, you know, I'll probably try something different. And then there's a whole spectrum so, of maps from the very simple to the obscenely complex. Um, mm -hmm. And they can work in different ways. You know, a, a proportional symbol map is going to go lovely in a report, um, but not on the cover of a book or a poster you know you want something a little yeah. bit more impactful so you yeah. might go for something just a little bit more challenging visually so when you're going through that process are you thinking about both the projection of the actual map and then to all these other classes of cartograms and objects and things we can put on the map because the the projection thing is something that i just i kind of ignore because <laughs> uh, you know it's not it's like it seems like uh, a rabbit hole that I just don't want to get into, but I suspect that it's something that you and others, people that you work with, take it really seriously. And so how do you balance these two and make these decisions as you progress through a project? Well, I mean, the projections issue is interesting. I think people people are frightened about it because it's fundamentally about about math, you know, and right. I, I, yeah. I balk at that. I don't want to get involved with all of that. Well, I mean, the beauty these days with most software packages, you don't have to worry about it. You just have to you have to make a decision yeah, about which is the most effective projection to act as a, the scaffold for your map. 
Uh, and that's what it is. It's the scaffold. It's the framework. And without a correct framework, it doesn't matter what you're going to show. You can make a real mess of it. Um, I mean, fortunately, in the US, you've got a size and shape that just works well with Alba's equal area projection, which and I mean, I know you have to move Alaska a little bit and Hawaii and, and so on, but it, it just works. It's a nice, nicely balanced shape. It works great in landscape. Um, and crucially for data, it works as well. So whenever you're making mm. maps of population-based data, the, the fundamental issue is you need an equal area projection. Um, and without that, you are going to introduce all sorts of visual issues into the map that make interpreting it a lot harder and mm -hmm. will force people into seeing the map a way in which the data actually doesn't support. It's just that the projection has morphed it into something that, you know, says something slightly different. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess, I mean, it, it's important, particularly with smaller scale maps, the larger you go, as in, you know, the smaller area, if you're just making a map of a town or a, a city, mm -hmm. no, nah, pro projections are irrelevant largely because, it, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, but if you're making maps at a, a country or a continental scale or a global scale, then they, they matter very much. Um, and um, I, I guess I'd be foolish not to comment on Web Mercator at this point um, because everyone everyone <laughs> loves to hate it, right? It's, right, right. But, I mean, I, I would counter that. There is nothing wrong with Web Mercator. I mean, from a, t from a technical point of view, it made a lot of sense to go down that route for... Um, you know, making web maps way back when. I say way back when. We're only talking 15 years or so. Um, but um, <laughs> but they don't support every type of mapping that you might want to publish on the web. And mm -hmm. this isn't so much a problem of Web Mercator. It's a problem of people not being willing to just go that extra mile to change the projection to suit the map that they're making. And um, pretty much every major mapping platform allows you to do that now. It's we, yeah. we've, we've gone beyond having to be forced to use Web Mercator um, for data maps, and and really they they should be consigned to history now. If you're going to make a data map with Web Mercator now, you're frankly just being a little bit lazy uh, these days. Mm. Um, yeah. So Web Mercator's fine if you want to navigate the globe in a canoe. That's <laughs> that's his purpose. <laughs> you know, it, it's a, right. it's a, that's why it was made for navigation, but it's not for showing population data and and so on. You mentioned that the Albers projection, at least for for the United States, are there other projections that you think people should use, or maybe don't get the attention that they deserve? Um, not explicitly. I don't have a favorite projection. I don't. Uh, I don't go down. Do most do most photographers have a favorite projection? I think some would say, you know, they they like things like the Bond projection, which is the heart shaped one. But they're really uh, they're yeah. really just um, curiosities. You know, you can't do anything uh, particularly useful with those. I, I think rather than saying which projection is good and which is not so good, um, I, I would just scrape off a layer. It's not about trying to find a projection. It's about employing the special property of a projection. So properties. Mm such as um, equal area um, or conformality where angles are equivalent across the map. You know, these, these properties are what drives the projections purpose and its usefulness to you. So um, I, I've got a colleague here called Buyan Sorich, who was one of the authors of the viral hit, the equal earth projection from 
last year. Um, and he's also created a tool called Projection Wizard. If you just Google Projection Wizard, it'll it'll pop up. And it's great because what it allows you to do is just zoom into a part of the world you're interested in mapping. And it will give you choices for that part of the world at that particular scale and say, here is your best projection for for mapping data for equal area. Here is your right. best projection if you're doing, a, um, let's say, an aeronautical chart or something else. So it, it's not difficult to... Um, to just select an appropriate projection these days. So it, it's right. not really about a favorite right. or least favorite, or, or it's about selecting the special property of a projection that uh, makes most sense to you. Yeah. Um, your book is massive, is like a tour de force <laughs> of, of maps. Yeah. Um, and so I want to ask you two quick questions before we go. So I want to know, maybe you don't have specific answers for these, but do you have a favorite map of all time and a least favorite map of all time? Mm. Either yours or others. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and by the way, thanks for thanks for constantly bringing the book up. That's That was supposed to be my job. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to yeah, do? Yeah, that was supposed to be my job, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, What a, it is a monster. Uh, yeah. And I was privileged to be given the freedom and flexibility to basically just write the book I wanted to write. And that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a wonderful opportunity. Um, so my favorite map, uh, my all time favorite map is um, Harry Beck's 1933 London underground map. Um, some people might even call it a diagram. Um, it's a schematic map. It does a perfect job of showing the routes uh, in and around London, simple lines, Horizontal, vertical, 45 degrees, color-coded, symbols for stations. That's it. Job done. And it's the basis for every subsequent metro map. I mean, we can go into the history and we can basically prove that Beck didn't invent the schematic map, but that's by the by. I think he was in the right place at the right time to capture a a sense and a mood of graphic design in London in the 1930s. And that map fitted very nicely into that overall aesthetic um, that was being pushed um, at the time. Um, I hate the current map. So it it Ah. goes to prove that an idea from the 1930s, if you just keep persisting with it and basically just keep adding more data and adding more lines and adding more colors and adding more information, you end up with a complete mess. So, you know, it's not that I like the London underground map. I think the current one, the current official one, I think is a, an awful piece of work. It's just way too cluttered. But yeah, that that classic 1933 original one is my favourite. Um, and you could argue that if Beck was making the map of today's massively more complex network, he may not even have taken the approach that he took um, because it doesn't necessarily suit the purpose of today's map. Since you had mentioned the the change in technologies, how much do you think his decision making was driven by the technology he had at the time? Well, I mean, he was an electrical draftsman, and um, yeah. you know, he's he was his job was basically creating um, schematics of electrical wiring diagrams. So you can see that he he obviously yeah. literally quite literally drew from his experience the, the right. technology that he was used to using and made a map that made sense to him. Um, yeah, yeah. You maybe do it differently today uh, if you were starting from scratch. Um, my my least favorite map. Just to finish off that, um, really hard question. 
there isn't a, a, a map I dislike particularly, but there is a map type that I dislike, and that's wow. any map that seemingly goes viral across social media when it has absolutely no qualities whatsoever. It's it's the map that yeah. that is not. It's the map that's nonsense. It's the map you know you look at and you can see holes in it. You can see problems. You can see the way in which the map readers have been tricked into thinking it's it's great. And you know, unfortunately, before you know it, half a million people have said, "Hey, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life." And then it just goes crazy from there. And some yeah. little corner of the internet with a cartographer going, excuse me, this is, this actually isn't a very good map. That doesn't, that doesn't wash. So right, right, right. that's my, and of course, you know, the converse is true. I've seen people, you know, make some absolutely wonderful work and no one ever sees it. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't cause even the slightest blip. So it's not really that there's a map I like. Um, it's really the, the sort of environment of today's rapid sharing uptick kind of world and how that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily equate to the quality of the piece of work that people are uh, upticking. It's no. just right. stuff. There's a lot of noise. Yeah. There's some great stuff yeah. within it, but there's a lot of noise. Yeah. Uh, the, one map I, um, the one map I do dislike yeah. is my own. I made a map in... 2009 uh, a map of irish surnames and um i hate it it's it's one of those <laughs> it's one of those things i did for a particular reason at a particular time in my life and it comes back every single year around st patrick's day and i look at i look at you know it's just like that i don't know it's like that band with that one classic single that yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. they come to hate yeah. because they've got to play it every gig, yeah, play it every gig. <laughs> and, and, and they desperately want their, their, their fans to, to listen to their super cool new work that they've spent ages yeah. crafting. No, they want to hear the classic. <laughs> yeah. They want to hear that one. That Mbop is a good yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I never thought that would crop up today. Hanson. I, I try to get Hanson. I should try to get Hanson into every episode of the all show. Right. That should be a new goal. <laughs> um, well, I'll put links to all this stuff uh, on the show notes so people can check it out, um, including uh, your site and your cool, book you. and the Projection Wizard. Um, I'm sure people would like to play around with that too. So, so thanks for taking the time and uh, and chatting with me. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun. Thanks. And thanks to you for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you learned something. I do hope you'll check out Ken's website. He's got a lot of great tutorials and a lot of great examples on, on the page. Also check out his book. Uh, it's linked on the show notes page. Really check it out. It is, it is an amazing uh, book that will help you improve the way you uh, use maps in your data visualizations. And if you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a review. Please consider going over to my Patreon page or just give a shout out to the show on Twitter, Facebook, or your favorite social media platform. So until next time, this has been the Policy of This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.